Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison to prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For four years now, the Wirecutter has named Foley's Jarvis Standing Desk the best standing desk on the market, and not just because it sounds like a butler. That said, standing desks really aren't about standing, they're about movement. And Foley's standing desks and collection of active chairs give you the freedom to sit, stand, stretch, squat, perch, or lean yourself into a healthy, comfortable position that works for your body's unique and changing needs. Just listen to your body and let it flow. I have a fully standing desk in my office at home. Uh, it is one of their smaller models. It looks like it might be a podium, actually, but it's really changed the way I relate to my work. Um, I am one of those people that uh, every once in a while just need to shift my consciousness in order to keep going. Um, it's probably some kind of attention thingy. Uh, and moving to the standing desk does it. Um, I, I, I can write for a while and start to feel stuck and then go to the standing desk, and things seem to open up a little bit. Um, Not just the joints uh, and tendons, but my ideas. And so Foley has all of the stuff for you to do that. It has standing desks, standing chairs, which sounds like it might be an oxymoron, but they're like these tall stool things that you don't really sit on, but you just kind of lean against. And all of the stuff that they have encourages movement, engaging your core muscles for a healthier and more natural posture that helps you feel better at the end of the day. With iconic pieces like the Jarvis Standing Desk, the Capisco Chair, and the Topo Mat, Fully has helped people discover freedom in the workplace. Rigid sitting can contribute to negative health effects. You've probably heard the phrase, sitting is the new smoking. Fully's desks and chairs relieve static loads on joints and ligaments while improving posture and circulation. Fully wants to make active work life available to as many people as possible so their pieces are always affordable. From design to shipping to service after your purchase, Fully is there for you every step of the way. So get your body moving in your workspace. Go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully desk, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I'm very excited about the show this week. Uh, some guests that I genuinely consider friends and genuinely love talking to. And I guess maybe I shouldn't even imply that's not true of every guest, um, but these guests are particularly fun. I'm having on my old MTV colleague, Doreen St. Felix, who now is a staff writer at The New Yorker. We're going to talk about uh, Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino's This Is America video, which if you have not already seen, if you're one of the two or three people left that have not seen it, maybe you should like pause this and go watch it, at least before that segment, which is at the end of the show. And if you want to listen to a segment first before you consume Childish Gambino, well, then I invite you to listen to my conversation with Ross Duthat. 
He is a columnist for the New York Times, and he is uh, he is a friend like this, definitely. He's a he is a conservative. He's someone who I've met a few times in social and sort of panel settings. There's a whole panel, you know, ecosphere out there, and I've always enjoyed talking with him. I've enjoyed talking with him much more than I've enjoyed his columns, quite frankly. So when he wrote his kind of infamous sex robot piece last week, if you haven't read that, then, well, I guess you should go read that. Uh, I felt compelled to respond not just to the column, but like to him as a person. Uh, and I, I, in the piece that I wrote about his column, invited him to chat because I felt like, hey, dude, like maybe talk this over before you run something about incels and sex robots in the New York Times. And anyway, he reached back out to me, and I think we wound up having a pretty awesome discussion, both about the piece he intended to write, which is not the one people reacted to, and then the piece that people reacted to. So, without further ado, here's Ross Dufat. Welcome to the show, Ross. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I mean, you're, you know, we don't quite have the, you know, so-and-so go on Chapo, like, following, you know, there's, we don't have that catchphrase, but you're one of, I think you may be the first person that people have said, you should have Ross on, and I was able to, like, have you on, which is just very exciting for me, hopefully exciting. That's good. I'm, I'm really an easy get. I've never, the, the Chapo guys have never invited me on. Um, <laughs> I guess, like, the scale of insults that they deliver to me, I'm told, should make me hesitate, but you know, I mean, I'm I'm open to invitations from from anybody. I mean, we last saw each other on Bill Maher's show. Uh, yep. It's not totally friendly territory. No, that was actually kind of an ambush interview. I mean, I guess they knew you. They told you what they were they were going to oh, do. Yeah, but no, I mean, they 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 told me that he wanted to talk about. Um, so for for listeners who did not watch you and I perform on Real Time with Bill Maher, which of course all your listeners should run out and watch. Yes. Um, Bill wanted to talk uh, to me, but in the end ended up talking to both of us because you were kind enough to take my side about his dear friend, Hugh Hefner, um, yes. who I had had some somewhat negative things to say about <laughs> when, he, when he passed away. Um, and Bill, yeah, I mean, Bill was, he, was, he, was his, he was his pal. He thought he was a great American and he wanted to ask, you know, how dare I speak ill of the dead and, and, and so on. Um, but, you know, the producers, the producers, as you well know, tell you roughly what he's interested in talking about. So um, and I was actually, you know, as a columnist, um, he sort of read pieces from my Hugh Hefner obituary um, to his audience. And he was reading them in order to condemn me for saying these things. But, you know, I wrote them. So, of course, I'm happy to have them read to a a national audience. So no, I, I have no complaints. You are a very good sport about it. So he did have you on to talk about your Hefner kind of anti-eulogy. I don't know, the A-eulogy. There's probably a, a better way to... There's there's probably some great Latin term for it. Yes. I only pretend to have a classical education. <laughs> tell, you, tell you what it is. And it, I remember when it started off, um, he, he thought he really had you. The way, the way that I jumped in is he thought he really had you because he was like, do you mind if we talk about your sex life, Ross, right? Like, yes. I jumped in with, I imagine it's consensual, um, <laughs> which I, I do. 
And that was the main point for me, right, about any discussion you're going to have about Hugh Hefner's sex life and, and what critique is of it. You and I have different critiques, I think. Um, although, I think. I mean, I think they overlap. Yes. Um, and I think that Hefner is sort of a case study in how sort of, you know, there's the blurry line between explicit consent and, uh, you know, how, how the lines around consent get blurry in a hurry when you're a rich and famous celebrity, um, you know, whose parties are people hand out quaaludes and so on. And you're sort of paying your girlfriends to be your girlfriends. Like, it's all... It's it's a blurry area. It's a blurry area, but you know, kind of literally, if you're handing out quaaludes and alcohol, right? Um, and also, it was an interesting example of, of something else that's kind of in the news right now, which is that Mar wanted to talk about this person through the lens of his personal relationship with this guy. Like, he kept bringing that up, you know, like, I know this guy. I know this guy. Um, I, he was a great man or whatever. And I think if there's one thing that recent headlines have shown us, it's that um, you know, people can have public personas that we admire or respect, which isn't my opinion of Hef, but it definitely like Bill Maher did like and respect him. And that doesn't mean that they do everything the way we want them to in their personal lives. You know, well, right, and people can be charming. I mean, look, I you know, I didn't, I didn't obviously know Hefner personally um, to the extent that I had any sort of window into what he was like as a human being. It was from watching um, the the Girls Next Door, the reality TV program about him and his girlfriends, um, you know, on which he was supposed to come across as a kind of, you know, kind of daffy, crotchety old, old uncle or something who just happened to be also having sex with these girls. Um, but, you know, I mean, Hefner, like, I'm sure that that Hefner was likable in many, in many ways that he was nice to people who he liked, um, that he was a good friend to Mar. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not sort of a defense of either the worst things that might've gone on in and around the Playboy mansion or the stuff that my column was primarily concerned about that Bill and I argued about, which is sort of his larger impact on the culture. And of course, the interesting thing to me about that conversation was that, you know, I was making this, I think, not that radical argument that sort of the victory of Hefner's vision of what, you know, sort of what sex is supposed to be had led us inexorably to the world of sort of pornography as we know it now. And Bill wanted to draw, Mar wanted to draw this big distinction between, you know, sort of the Playboy style of pornography and what you know, what you, what you get online these days. And, and Bill wanted to sort of express this kind of horror and moral outrage yeah. <laughs> internet pornography while saying, but, you know, the centerfolds in Playboy were totally different. Tasteful, um, even. They were tasteful. Which is, which is true. They were and are <laughs> very different from what the internet has ended up offering. You didn't say this. I had to keep saying this. You know, I think for you, I don't think we necessarily disagree about this, but that the Hefner worldview is centered on male pleasure entirely. Yeah. No, I think we, we completely agree about yeah. that. And I think, you know, this is one of the, one of the arguments I was trying to make about Hefner was that it's useful to understand sort of the history of the sexual revolution as something that begins um, not as this sort of egalitarian feminist thing, but begins as a kind of male driven 
revolt against sort of, you know, in Hefner's case, a kind of Protestant domesticity, this sort of, you know, female-shaped domestic American culture that he grew up in in the Midwest. And, you know, he wanted to sort of exit that into a world of, you know, jazz and consumerism and male pleasure. Um, And much of what's happened in our culture since, I feel, I think, has been sort of attempts to correct and channel and improve the sort of, you know, baseline chauvinism of that initial sort of playboy wave. Right. Whereas I guess I would argue that I think I do think that the kind of extreme and you know, what a lot of people would consider kind of gross porn that we have today. I do think that's a that's there's a through line from the Hefnerian worldview to that, because I still think it's like largely centered on male pleasure and commercialism. You know, yeah. I think that. No, I think that's I think we, we, we <laughs> completely we completely agree on that. I think it's sort of it's a. I mean, I, I think, as I, as I said on the show, like you can imagine a world where you know, where Hefner was this sort of, you know, a sort of dissident figure who was sort of offering a, you know, a critique of an overbearing Puritanism and so on. Um, And his legacy would be less negative. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he ceased to be a dissident, that his sort of vision of what sex is for um, and how it should be pursued became sort of the dominant vision in the culture meant that you can't sort of separate what he did from not just sort of the 10,000 hustler stuff that came after immediately, but also sort of just, again, this larger trajectory of internet pornography, which is dominated by a kind of, you know, not everywhere, not in every case, but by an essentially misogynistic vision um, sort of shot through with violence and degradation of of sex and male-female relationships. Yeah, and that if if a feminist vision... You know, of the it, it practically isn't really part of the sexual revolution as we talk about it, like as culture critics, you know, like feminism is almost like set apart from it, because I think that like if you follow the line of feminist thought from that era to today, like where you end up with porn is in is with feminist um, porn that does exist. <laughs> yep. And that isn't necessarily just about like, oh, well, the woman's in charge. It doesn't have to be that. A lot of what feminist porn is today has to do with being ethically produced, um, where it's like not just that women are it's not it's less important than women being the dominant you know force in front of the camera It's that women are the dominant forces behind the camera and that people have consent um, built into the structure of the performance. You know, like I don't think that the kind of stuff that people object to today is is has much to do I don't think you can blame feminists for it like the 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 things that people look at online and 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 what a lot of us who aren't even that old <laughs> would say is kind of no gross. no I, I I think that's basically right the only qualifier I would I would offer is that I think feminism has this incredibly complicated relationship with um with sort of pornographic culture yeah. and, you know, sort of these, all, all of these questions around sort of public expressions uh, and depictions of sex where feminism sort of moves back and forth between somewhat different modes of analysis. And, you you know, you get these um, incredibly intense feminist sort of extreme seeming to a lot of people, feminist critiques of 
pornography in the sort of in the Andrea Dworkin era, right. um, and then you sort of pinball away from them towards a kind of sex, you know, the kind of sex positive feminism that I think I think you know, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that a sort of a, an essentially sex positive vision of feminism sort of defined the most important parts of public feminism over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and I think that, you know, to me as sort of an outsider to this, you know, some kind of religious conservative, my, my sense is that the limits of sort of sex positive feminism is just the ease with which it gets sort of effectively co-opted by the mix of sort of consumerism and chauvinism that's, I, I think, if not inherent, at least very hard to escape from um, yeah. in the post-Hefner sort of sexual revolution paradigm. And I um, I agree with you. And I, I mean, I, I struggle with this myself. I think one problem here is that when you talk about pornography and feminism, you start to run into the same problem that we have with talking about the media <laughs> and bias, you know, like it just breaks down because there's all feminism around as as related to pornography, like what the feminist take on pornography is, I think is really fractured right now. Like, I think a lot of feminists are struggling with it personally, you know, because there is a limit on the sex positivity thing. And I think for me, it started to come down to the means of production, basically. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's, you can just look at a picture and call a piece of pornography feminist or not, or say it's, it helps, it promotes or, or doesn't promote feminism. Like, you have to look at the way that it was produced. Like, that's, that's the the measure, you know. Um, and then, yes, and then they're, they're performing the public sphere. But we're getting so so. Here's actually a, a good, you know, segue maybe into sex robots. Um, yeah, which we have to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes, it's why I'm it's why I'm here. <laughs> which is that we this whole little preamble is established that you and I I think have a somewhat similar critique of both you know Hefner himself and Hefnerian, you know sex culture right and so i was so dismayed like to read your piece not because i thought you were coming out in favor of giving incels sex robots which was a common so again the back the background i i wrote a piece with the uh Apparently, way too provocative. You, title. Well, the come re- on the now. Re- the, re- the redistribution. <laughs> well, we can. Well, we should. We, what we should do is talk. We should talk about the piece, and then we can have like. I'm interested in sort of a meta conversation about, um, sort of the reception of yeah. columns in the Trump era, which I'm sort of interested in and trying to sort of figure out as as a as a columnist, as I expect you are too. But really, I think you had sort of a three step um, analysis of how we're going to inevitably wind up with sex robots. Um, that uh, y- you kind of posit that uh, the sexual revolution, uh, like all neoliberal deregulation, which, which is a wonderful little, like, you know, swipe there, um, you know, created... It's a, it's a very left-wing column. It is a very left It's and Marxist. It, it's, 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 it's actually Marxist analysis in many ways. Um, uh, materialist. Uh, so, so the neoliberal deregulation of sex is the way you frame the sexual revolution, and that it's and like other forms of neoliberal deregulation has created extreme winners and losers, like an income inequality of sorts in the sex market. Um, and okay, help me on part two. Part two is that people are aware. Oh, part two is that people are aware of this discrepancy between the winners and losers and the in the promulgation of like this fantasy life. Am I right? 
Yeah, I mean, step step two is, well, first of all, this isn't, and this is probably part of the problem with the piece, this is not the order in which I actually wrote the piece. Yes, that's um, right. I'm skipping over. If you're trying, right. Well, I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the idea is basically right. So you have this big shift in the sexual landscape. Um, and, you know, you don't have to call it deregulation. You know, you can call it sort of tolerant permissiveness or something yes. if you want to be if you want to be more. I think it's inaccurate to call it neoliberal deregulation. But yes. I do call it neoliberal deregulation. Yes, yes. I think you're being very um, cute but, in saying that. But you, yes. could, I'm, you could give it a lot of names and whatever, however you describe it, it has, as all big social changes do, change sort of change the distribution of sexual experience. Um, just like if you, you know, if you instituted polygamy tomorrow in the U.S., you right. would change the distribution of sexual experience. Um, so, and this has corresponded with this elevation um, right. in the culture of the importance of sex, right. uh, which, again, I sort of, I trace back, I mean, you know, I don't think Hefner, I, I, I think it would have happened without Hefner, but I think Hefner is sort of a useful figure for sort of distilling it, this idea that, um, you know, celibacy is for losers. Um, you know, that I mean, I'm a Catholic, so in my own case, it's like, you know, well, your priests are all probably closeted gay men or, you know, weirdos. Or sexual molesters, like, or they, or right, they molest or, right, children. Or pedophile, you know, right. sort of pedophiles, of course. Right. So then you, and you do, and this is a very canny thing you did to kind of compare it to the just economic marketplace too, right? Because it, it's a parallel to what people are experiencing now economically, which is extreme winners and losers, um, with at the same time a fetishization of who the winners are and a dismissal of who the losers are, right? Right. So and everybody so who's then, rich is good and everybody who's not rich, even whether it's sex or money, is a loser, stupid person who deserves what they get or right. don't get. So then, so then there are various ways society could respond to this. And one way is to become more sort of conservative in certain ways to sort of, you know, reemphasize monogamy and chastity and sort of have stronger taboos against divorce and all the kind of things that religious conservatives tend to favor. Um, and I think that's extremely unlikely to happen. Um, another possibility is what I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I think is sort of, you know, sort of where um, a lot of people who identify as feminists, as sort of left-wing egalitarians would say we should go, which is a kind of broad-based cultural shift. Um, and, you know, and I, I link this to a, a big and really interesting essay in the London Review of Books uh, came out a couple months ago. Uh, it was called, like, is there a right to, or does anyone have the right to sex by a philosophy professor named Amiya Srinivasan? Um, but basically that, you know, you can, you can have this sort of gradual transformation of society in which beauty standards shift and racism and, and sort of various forms of sexism diminish. And this will lead basically to sort of more democracy in sexual relations, um, different power dynamics. Yeah, more, more equality in sexual relationships, more, more acceptance. And that's, and that's, that's a good solution, too. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen either. So you posit, step, you posit the third possibility, which is sex robots. Well, the third possibility <laughs> is basically what I think already happened with pornography. And I probably should have gone into this a bit more. But yeah. basically, if you go back 25 years or so, you have a situation where there's this sort of temporary convergence between religious conservatives and feminists. 
um, where there, there's this concern that, you know, you have this new landscape of pornography and it is pandering to and encouraging not just misogyny, but violence, mm -hmm. right? Rape, um, sexual assault and so on. Uh, you have this idea that like Ted Bundy and these sort of serial killer types were obsessed with porn um, that I think has certain parallels to the way people are talking about, you know, these, these sort of misogynist um, terrorist yep. inclined incels and voluntary celibate. We have to bracket the whole incel conversation because that's where you went wrong right off the right, bat. No, we are I, doing, I, we are doing the I, most I know, generous, con having the most saying, generous form of the conversation right now. Right. Right. So, <laughs> but there is so bra bracket the incels, but there's but it's actually, you know, there there's this period yeah. in the 80s where feminism is very concerned about the links between porn, misogyny, sexual violence and so on. Right. And what actually happens over the next 25 years is that the culture writ large and at least significant parts of feminism sort of make their peace with the ubiquity of porn. And it seems to turn out, um, and this is a contested thing, but there's a certain amount of data to back it up, that like porn doesn't turn men into rapists. It's sort of, if anything, it acts as a kind of um, sort of narcotic that sort of, you know, dulls sexual appetite and sort of turns men inward in various ways. And so an age of ubiquitous porn isn't an age of, rising levels of rape and sexual assault, as far as we can tell from the data. And so our society is just like, I think there's just this sort of tacit bargain between the libertarian right and the socially liberal left, where it's like, well, porn is, we don't say this, but it's implied that porn is a partial solution to the sort of some of the sexual unhappiness in our culture. And so I was arguing that... I don't, I mean, I think that that's a, that's not, I mean, yeah, it's a partial, I wouldn't say it's a partial solution any more than heroin is a partial solution to the unhappiness in our right. culture. Right. Well, look, but again, so this is, and this gets into the, the medic stuff, right. so I, I don't want to leap too far ahead. Right, right, like, right, right. I wrote a column like, you know, like eight weeks ago. <laughs> it was called Let's Ban Porn. I remember it, so yes. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I have good bona fides in saying, yeah, I don't think that's a good thing either. Right. right. It's yeah, it's like it is like and you know, porn is an opiate of the masses and that's a bad thing. Yeah. But it's the thing we've ended up doing. And in the same way, I think this too is a bad thing. You can imagine a kind of intersection between sort of techno libertarian support for I mean sex robots is sort of the right. crude Westworld way of putting it. Really it'll be sort of virtual reality sex. Right. And then this is and, where and this is where I have to throw up my hands at you right now. Because you're saying you imagine an alliance between the techno libertarians no, and it, basically it, the progressive it, left in it's saying not like an alliance though. And this is this is it's not it's not that the progressive left and the techno libertarians are getting together in rooms and saying, We're gonna plot this all out. We're gonna have some sex robots. I know, I know, I know that you're not saying that right, I know that you're not saying that. Positive feminists got together to plot the acceptance of porn. I'm saying it's the place of intersection between, it's, it's a place of sort of tacit intersection between left and right, right, where the, you know, the left says, well, you know, we have to have a certain amount of personal liberation. Um, we want to support, you know, the rights uh, of sex workers. So we need to legalize prostitution and regulate it instead of, uh, and call it sex work instead of prostitution and remove the stigma and meanwhile, the libertarian right is saying we're, you know, we're inventing 
we're inventing all these sort of virtual forms of sex and nobody's going to like it. Like people aren't going to be like, this is what right. I was trying to say. Yeah, you were saying, I, yeah. And you people also- aren't going to be like, oh, it's great. We're redistributing sex. But tacitly, that's where the culture is going to end up as this kind of further opiate solution to, and it's not really a solution, it's an opiate, but it's, right. it's, a, it's a response to loneliness, fragmentation, isolation, and so on. And so, and now we can circle back to everything that I did that was terrible in this call, but <laughs> somebody online said, basically, I was talking about Blade Runner 2049, yeah. and the assumption of my readership, or a big segment of my readership, was that I was talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. So now... Tell me about. I wish you'd like. This is the part where I where like I ended my column about it and said I wish you'd called me. (laughs) It's like we're friends, I think, and I and we had just had actually I think a fruitful discussion about the actual substance of your column and where I would say and you you have wound up kind of accepting this, which is that like what I think of a more like truly feminist um, response to the unhappiness of our culture wouldn't involve even the tacit you know, uh, approval of sex robots. It would be that hopefully like what I want is that widespread like shift in our culture where we redefine beauty standards. We redefine like a, you know, we redefine like who is able to have sex and who is attractive. And hopefully that changes the way that people think about sex in a way that makes us less lonely and less desperate. And to the extent there are sex robots or virtual realities or whatever, like I don't mind that they exist, but they're not the widespread, like narcotic, you know. Right. No, I, I, I think that that's I, I, that's I think what feminists writ large want. Yes. Yes. I'm just saying I don't think it's what we're gonna get. Right. <laughs> and you don't like it either, but feminists don't like it. And but I was just saying that like a lot of feminists would agree with you that that future that you posit is not one that we would want either. You know. Right. Although, again, I always say, like, I'm not necessarily against sex robots, and maybe this is my bad, like, tacit progressive. This is right. This is this is how the future. But this is how it happens, right? I had I need to come out against sex robots in order for them to keep them from happening. Right. Feminism needs to be against sex robots. Okay, but let's go back to what you did wrong. Let's go back to what you did wrong, which is that the incels you pegged it to the incels and Ross. Like you now, I think realize that was not good. And not only because, and this is where we have maybe had the meta discussion, because there are two things that went wrong there. And one is maybe the one you've been thinking about more, which is that it caused people to just read your entire, to not read your column, basically, and to take whatever you had to say in bad faith. But, I mean, my larger issue is that, I mean, I think that you did, like you brought into the conversation you know, the appeasement of terrorists, which I don't think you intended to do. But uh, you did. (laughs) You did do. So, yeah, so the column started, right. So the the column started by basically saying it had this sort of cumbersome frame Mm -hmm. that when I was writing it, I was like, well, this will be a signal to my readers that, you know, I'm not offering some full-throated endorsement of, things I'm quoting, I'm just sort of using them to get to my own point. Right. And obviously that that's that sort of structural thing, I think, was clearly a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that, though, right, the, the hook for the piece 
was this, I thought, really interesting overlap between the creepy-seeming things that this libertarian economist, Robin Hanson, wrote about sort of, well, you know, sex inequality is it can be as big a problem as monetary inequality, and you know why don't why don't people talk about that? And this very feminist and sort of self consciously enlightened piece by Srinivasan in the London Review of Books, which started with the last incel terrorist attack, right, the Santa mm-hmm. Barbara case, and used that as a way in to talk about um, whether there's a right to sex, and coming around to the view that no, there isn't a right to sex. But the fact that lots of people want to have sex and don't is a political question that feminists need to wrestle with in thinking about a better world, which is the point we were talking about earlier. And both of those cases, Hansen and Srinivasan, start with talking about the incels Mm -hmm. without either of them um, and either of them coming close to sort of endorsing, you know, incel violence or anything like that. and so because I was talking about them and because we just obviously had this horrible act of violence in Toronto, I ended up starting with the incels too. And that was, as you say, read as appeasing the incels, yeah. um, who I described as misogynistic and violent. But, you know, I could have put in a paragraph that was like, I mean, and, and this, is, this is sort of gets to the, to the meta point, right, of sort of writing in a polarized environment. Like mm-hmm. the column could have, included a 100-word paragraph right after, you know, I first started in that was like, let's be clear, incel terrorism is really, really terrible, and incels don't deserve women, and there is no, nobody deserves, you know, nobody deserves whatever their, the stasis of their imagination, um, and incels aren't going to be appeased by sex robots and so on. Um, and I could have done that. And probably that would have <laughs> taken taken the edge off taken the edge off some of this. And so I should have done it. Yeah. At the same time, like the column was not at all an endorsement of incel ideology. And I think if you read the column, you know, in a reasonably charitable light, it's clear that I'm saying, look, there are these terrible you know, there yeah, we just spent we people, just spent the majority of the past, you know, like 30 minutes. I mean, Srinivasan's essay, the point of right. Srinivasan's essay, which I quoted. Yes. It's substantially is to say there are lots of other people who are more sympathetic figures who are also sort of sexless in various ways. Um, and, you know, et cetera, on on to the rest of the argument. Havenly is the most delightful way to design spaces in your home on any budget. Partner with an interior designer to create a beautiful space on your unique style and design. You can then buy what you love directly through Havenly's platform with access to hundreds of realtors and the guaranteed best prices. Everyone could use a little help with designing a space in their home. I have used a designer. I have a friend who's actually uh, used Havenly as well. Uh, We both used it for office spaces. And I will tell you that this friend of mine and I, I think both of us consider ourselves pretty stylish. And also we've worked in offices all of our life, right? So like a stylish office seems like it would be easy to design. But you would be amazed at the kinds of solutions that an interior designer can come up with that you wouldn't. 
I mean, for one thing, there's just the breadth of knowledge, like all the things that they've seen. And then the other thing, there's the help that they can give you on what to splurge on and what to maybe save a little on. Uh, For instance, in my office, uh, I have a very fancy chair uh, for sitting, Um, uh, not the fully chair, but I have a very, I have an Eames chair. I'll just go ahead and say it. And that is what I spent a lot of my money on. Uh, And for the bookcases, I scrimped. I scrimped on the bookcases because my designer reminded me those are going to be the easiest things to take out and then replace with something maybe more substantial uh, when I want to, or I can never replace them. uh, And they will be something that I don't have to move to my next apartment. Anyway, Havenly's team of designers work with you online to design the living space of your dreams, whether it's a guest room, family room, kitchen, or, of course, an office. Starting at just $79 per room, Havenly helps you, again, every step of the way, using your budget and your style to shape the design you want at a price you can afford, because everyone deserves a beautiful living space. You start by taking their style quiz, which is a fun way to learn about your unique design style, and then Havenly matches you up with the perfect designer to put together the perfect room. You can turn your Pinterest board into reality. Try Havenly today by visiting havenly.com slash friends to get 25% off your design package. That is Havenly, H-A-V-E-N-L-Y.com slash friends for 25% off your design package. If you're thinking about doing a redesign, I swear to God, $79, 25% off of the stuff that you buy you're going to love the room and the space that you're in. And that's where you spend your time and your life. You want to love the space you're in. So try Havenly. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight, 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So just, I mean, I guess what I hear from you saying when you, when you say, you know, I could have done that. And also, you know, Hanson and Srivivasan wrote and they didn't, they, they didn't get the same kind of response I did. Do you resent the fact that you would have had to have put those hundred words in? I don't resent the fact. I mean, look, basically, you know, the deal is that in the environment that we inhabit now, um, if you're not being dragged on Twitter every eight weeks or so for a column, 
you're not probably not doing your job right. <clears throat> like the, you know the goal the goal of news. Well, what is your job? What is the job? The job is to you know raise interest. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of features to the job, but part of the job, certainly part of how I see my role at the Times as someone who's a conservative writing for a readership that disagrees with me on a lot of issues, is to sort of you know push the readership to engage with ideas from that are somewhat outside their comfort zone, or as I thought I was doing in this case, bring together ideas from sort of a libertarian extreme and an academic feminist extreme and sort of show how they interact in weird ways. Anyway, um, but the, the point being that if you're doing that kind of pushing and so on in this highly fraught environment, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get dragged and that's fine. The problem in this case, obviously, is that I felt like I was being dragged for a column that I didn't, for an argument that I didn't actually make. Like, I'm happy to be attacked for things I said. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, there, there's a sense in which you have to be, um, you know, you want, if, if I can't, if I'm, pers- if all I'm doing is persuading my readers that I want to set up the Republic of Gilead, then I'm failing in my, you know, I, I mean, I said this on, on Twitter, I think that, you know, a col- if a column is that misread, obviously the, the writer has made some kind of mistake. Yeah. So in that sense, I don't resent the idea that, you know, four more sentences at the top um, could have made could have made the column better. Um, what I'm uncertain about is the extent to which, like, one that you know people are so primed by the Trump era atmosphere to sort of do the most uncharitable reading possible. That like, you know, there are limits to how much you can accomplish even with more sentences. And two, you know, I mean, you don't like, so, so you're saying like appeasing terrorists, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that kind of rhetoric showed up in, in a lot of critiques. That's like by saying, you know, there are some underlying social, you know, sort of social realities that the incel phenomenon is connected to that we need to be concerned about, that that's appeasing terrorists. But like, you know, th- that's to some extent, that's the left making its own dumb version of the dumb right-wing argument that, like, if you talk about, if you ever talk about the root causes of terrorism, you're appeasing terrorists. Like, isn't the left supposed to be in favor of understanding the social context in which young men get radicalized? Yeah. And what does it say about, you know, what does it say about sort of where the left is right now that, like, you know, that 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 idea is, you know, that, that you, that basically, it's like the equivalent of writing a column about the Islamic State and feeling like you need to put in seven extra sentences that are like, let's be clear, the heading is terrible. You know, <laughs> I think I it mean, is like, like but I, it, I mean, I, it is like that. I mean, it's terrible, but the assumption, I, I guess it's just the assumption that because I'm a conservative or whatever, or a religious conservative or whatever, that I must, you know, that it's not enough for me to describe what did I say, you know. I said, you know, I described him as a, you know, he, this, I described it as I commenting on the recent terrorist violence in Toronto. So I'm describing it as terrorism. I'm describing, I say, you know, the pro, you know, that, that the frank misogyny of toxic online males, like, it's not like I had language in the column that was sort of, sort of, you know, any, to, to the extent that I was sort of describing the incels, I was describing them as 
toxic, misogynist terrorists, right? Those were literally the words I used. Right. And so the question is, the question that I wrestle with is like, how many more sentences do you put in? Do you put in one more sentence that says, and to be clear, these toxic online males don't deserve, you know, don't deserve your bodies, female readers. Like, I can do that. Um, I think it makes, you know, it makes the column a little, as a piece of writing, a little, a little worse. But it's, it's clearly sort of, it's clearly necessary to a point. Um, but you also don't want to get in a place as a writer where you're spending all of your time worrying about your sort of most, most you know, your uncharitable. most uncharitable readers. I guess that's the, that's the tension. I, not that, I hear you. Not that you're, go ahead. I, I, I hear you. I do. And I, I mean, I struggle with this to some degree myself. Um, I think that context always matters. And I think one reason why I would say that, yeah, you should have added that four extra sentences um, is because we're still living in a period where n- a lot of people don't know what incel means. They've never heard of incels before, right? Um, where the idea that they are unhappy because they don't have sex seems to be the thing that they believe about themselves and that they want other people to believe about them, but that it is a mistake to take seriously. Like, that is not why they are unhappy. Incels are not unhappy because they don't have sex. Incels are unhappy because they hate women. Like, we don't we don't say of other kinds of terrorists, you know, like, um, these horrible racists are unhappy because black people are inferior, right? <laughs> they, they're unhappy because they see inferior people getting jobs that they believe that they had. We don't take seriously the, their view of the world, you know? Um, and well, sort of. I mean, you do take, but but what you just said, your description is a version of their view of the world, right? But like, right? we don't. Like it is a version, of the view but of the world that I mean, even that is. We, but we all, but we're always very most, careful to bracket it as their view, right? Well, no, but the most hostile. I mean, the the critical liberal readings of Trump voters, for right. instance, right, is not that they simply hate black people. Right. It's that they feel that, you know, they that they had privileges that were connected to their status as, excuse me, as white people that were also connected to, you know, their employment and jobs and middle classness and so on. You know, all of this was right. bound up in white identity and it feels threatened yeah, by that's, and, a black president, by social change and so on. Um, but you're going beyond just saying, I mean, right. I mean, and, and that's how it needs to. Analysis. And that's how going, we should do the analysis of the incels, too, is what I'm saying is like we don't like if if a, if a Trump voter says <laughs> in a way, if a Trump voter says this, I don't like immigrants taking my job. Like I would say as a as a liberal critic, like or, um, I will hear that and believe that that what that's what that person believes. But it, for instance, it's important to look at data that shows that a lot of Trump voters don't live in areas where there's a lot of manufacturing and they don't live in areas where there are a lot of immigrants. Right. So right. they're not actually angry at immigrants taking their jobs. They're angry at the idea of people who are different colors taking someone else's job, which is a very different thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we had there's a so, whole another rabbit hole. Right. right but there is a whole another rabbit hole. But I'm saying that, like, here, I mean, it's just but I'm also saying, like, these problem. are actually these are great parallel discussions to be having because it is important, like in our highly taked atmosphere, you know, right. to my, contextualize but, all of this I mean, stuff. 
And especially like, again, because incels are sort of only just now beginning to be understood. Like, I do appreciate that you'd refer to the guy as terrorist. I do, actually. And like, in general, I think I gave your column a pretty generous reading and I take seriously your I mean, I I think that you're, you know, know, I I would obviously quarrel with some of the framing of it, but I think, you know, by the standards of the various (laughs) dragging that... You know that that yours yours was charitable. Um, you know, and I think that what you said at the end is also true, right? That like you know people read they read columns through sort of your public identity, and like you know everybody has a sort of identity that floats apart from yeah. specific things they write. And my identity is social conservative who writes for the Times and criticizes the sexual revolution and so on. Um, And I think that you should personally just be you like I would say, like, as again, someone who I think can consider yourself at least like an acquaintance, if not a friend. Like my advice to you is like when you're talking about this shit, you should probably run it by somebody who's actually going to be able to tell you the opposite point of view. Right. I mean, I think one. So I I honestly I was having a I was trying to have a meta discussion with you through my column in a way like I think we would all be better off if we as columnists kind of like took that extra step to be like, am I? Yeah. Think- I mean, there are, so the, and there are a couple of points about this. One is that as you know, as a columnist, like, and I think sometimes readers don't know completely yeah. columns are not written generally in the course of like some long sort of seminar setting. No, where unfortunately, you're sort of yeah. Owning every <laughs> sentence and so on. And, you know, without, getting into too many details of my personal life as a father of three small children, the context in which this poem was written was not one in which I was sitting around saying, all right, I've written 500 words. Now I'm going to call up a friend and sort of talk about whether I'm doing it the right way. And that's, you know, that's sort of a problem with the nature of deadlines and the nature of work. Um, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, I, I would be delighted to talk to you about your <laughs> columns. I think that I don't exist in a sort of, you know, male social conservative bubble to any extent, I mm-hmm. think. So I'm not, I'm not short on friends who disagree with me about these things from a variety of different perspectives. And I've had, you know, a number of conversations, including with a somewhat guy who's friends with Srinivasan herself um, about the piece. So I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of, I'm not sort of floating unmoored from liberal and left-wing critique. And I think one of, you know, one of the things that was frustrating to me was, again, I thought that the piece was sort of highlighting this 5,000 word sort of, I thought really fascinating, you know, left feminist London Review of Books essay and sort of saying it was worth reading and engaging with and so on. And I had lots of people tweeting at me, you know, why do you ignore the, you know, why do you ignore the female perspective in the piece? And, and, but then beyond that, also people saying, oh, Dowsett raises the Srinivasan essay just to sneer at it. And this is, again, where the sort of floating identity in the sort of polarization of the environment sort of affects how you're read. But I wasn't raising the Srinivasan piece to sneer at it. I obviously have a lot of substantive disagreements with her vision. Um, but I was raising it because I thought it was really interesting and connected to these connected to these debates and point to both sort of, you know, the utopian side of feminism, but also, again, as I said earlier in the conversation, the ways in which sort of sex positive feminism can get get co-opted in ways it doesn't expect. 
exactly. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. I guess I'm going to have to have you back. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. And with Everlane, you never need to overpay for quality clothes. Everlane makes only premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. I read somewhere uh, someone comparing Everlane to Apple. And indeed, the one store that Everlane has really feels like an Apple store. But you know what Everlane does that Apple doesn't is they do you know, responsible sourcing and they tell you where everything that you're wearing comes from and they let you investigate if you want um, the factories and workspaces that went into making the thing that you're wearing. They want you to know what you're paying for and why you're paying for it. They are radically transparent about every step in their process from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because they sell directly to you, the prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. I actually just today uh, was going through my closet and trying to figure out, uh, trying to pair back. And I came across my Everlane mid-rise jeans. And I was like, I'm never getting rid of these. These are actually just going to be in my closet forever because they are high quality and I look great in them. So you can check out the Cashmere Crew, the 100% human box cut tee, the silk short sleeve square shirt, which I also have, the high-rise skinny jean, the mid-rise jean, as I just said, and more. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for, no frills, just quality. And right now, you will get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash friends. Again, that's everlane, E-V-E-R-L-A-N-E dot com slash friends. Our next segment is with Doreen St. Felix, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And it's about Childish Gambino's, a.k.a. Donald Glover, or Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino's video, This Is America. Here's just a bit of it. This is America. Yeah, yeah. Don't catch you slipping, though. Hey, hey. Don't catch you slipping, though. Hey. Look what I'm whipping, though. Hey. Look how I'm kicking, though. Hey. I'm so pretty. Hey. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. So if you are one of... The half a dozen people in that cave where they don't get YouTube, and so you haven't seen the video, you might want to go check it out uh, because I'm not sure if the conversation that Doreen and I have is going to make a ton of sense if you haven't seen the video. But by now, uh, when I last checked, the video had 64 million views. So I feel confident that everyone listening, or at least a big percentage of those listening, are going to be able to follow this conversation just fine. Doreen, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. I am always, it's always a delight to talk to you. And I, this is a really good excuse to do so. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny. I was I was talking to Jeff, um, our producer, about uh, this episode of the show. And we usually do a listener question. And I said, well, actually, I have a host question. <laughs> I want to ask. I want to ask someone to help me make sense of this video, especially right. since I come to it, you know, obviously as a white person. And one of the things I feel like I've experienced with Donald Glover is that he's not making entertainment for me. Um, and I mean, I don't mean that literally, and I don't mean that he's ex trying to exclude me, but this video is an example, I think, of like how uncomfortable he can make people if he wants to. 
But you wrote a brilliant column about it. Do you want to walk us through what you think he's doing with this video, which is now, by the way, viewed 64 million times at least? Wow. Um, and I think every single one of those people has a take. <laughs> has written 64 million opinions. 64 million takes on this video. <laughs> so I want to also put out there that like, who knows? There's no definitive take. He's the only person that knows exactly what he's doing. Um. But you come to this with a lot of knowledge about his his about his work and about the context that he's working in. So walk us through it a little bit, and then uh, then maybe we can talk about my particular weird feelings that I have, which are obviously very important. So right. So um, I guess I'll just discuss my actual experience, my first experiential yeah. moment with the song. It is an experience that- to watch or to have it. It's like the song is an experience. Definitely. Right. So I happened to not be by an internet connection when the video dropped and it dropped Saturday night while he was hosting uh, Saturday night live and was also performing the song. Um, And the, the performance that he did on Saturday was, was sort of related to the video, but very much not at all showing the same kind of violence that you experience upon watching the video. And when you listen to the song, it sounds like your pretty standard heterogeneous Atlanta trap song, right? There's a lot of Afrobeat in it. There's a choir in it. It's maximalist. It didn't strike me as a protest song by any means. And then when you watch the video, you see that it's actually, the song is actually just one component within the statement that Donald Glover is very eager to make right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, upon first viewing, I was totally confused. Um, I think one of the more prominent takes about the music video has been Donald Glover wants to indict a culture that would prefer to focus on viral dancing, that would prefer to consume Blackness as purely entertainment and would rather ignore blackness when it's under siege by either the state, when it's under siege by uh, terrorists like Dylan Roof and that sort of thing. So I think that was like the first response that people had that Donald Glover was taking this moralist position and he was like basically wagging his finger at all of us for the way that we participate in, you know, the media ecosystem. Right. But then as I watched it like 10 more times, I started to feel a lot more unsure about his intentions in ways that both alarmed me and also intrigued me. Um, and I think primarily the question that a lot of people have been posing is who is this black artist to, you know, indict black consumers of culture for the way that they live, you know, for the, for their, um, you know, interest in wanting to experience joy and their interest in the the media machine. And so I think a lot of people ended up feeling a little bit affronted by that uh, interpretation of the video because, you know, that it puts the black listener and the black consumer in a very weird position, you know, is Donald Glover chastising us for the way that we choose to balance our consumption, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up kind of landing in a very ambiguous place and deciding that I think that while Donald Glover is obviously making a few statements about how blackness uh, is churned, 
churned through the American machine. I think he's also making a statement about himself and his ambivalence. Because at the end of the day, he is an entertainer, right? Right. He's someone who's gotten very wealthy on transmitting, uh, you know, interpretations of the Black psyche. Atlanta is a show that's all about the interior of the Black mind. Uh, And I think, like, I'm, I'm more interested in engaging the music video as a reflection of the artist as opposed to a reflection of the country as it stands. I I really appreciate that sort of second layer of analysis because I do think the immediate hot take was about it being an indictment. I also, right. w- we should probably point out that the name we sh- might be using here is Childish Gambino, right? And the fact that he has two names is yes. maybe important to the analysis. Right. Um, we can talk about the history of Donald Glover as a musician. Um, there's a really amazing origin story. Um, and I think it kind of like hints at his nonchalance towards mm-hmm. being a musician that has made some more serious arbiters of rap music, especially a little bit uncomfortable with him. Uh, when Donald Glover was in college, he went to NYU uh, very famously, he used a Wu-Tang Clan name generator to come up with his rap name. So <laughs> if we're, you know, thinking about intention and stuff, that's not something that has always been applied to a musician like Donald Glover. He's a creature of the internet. He's someone who's very much about like hacking um, the predominant ways that music is made and kind of like I, in my piece, I describe him, his musician character as a little bit of an imp. You know, he's became very famous for doing something called hashtag rap, which I think some people took to be in some way a satire of rap as it, it was evolving in that time. Um, and I think with his last album, which was uh, released in 2016, Awaken My Love, people started to think of Childish Gambino as a very serious artist. Um, there are obviously still critiques at this album, which it's a funk album. People say that, you know, he has just been sort of like uh, appropriating Parliament Funkadelic, that it really is just like a George Clinton tribute record. But, you know, I listened to it and I really did hear a musician trying to shape his own narrative. But with This Is America, he's making a completely different lane switch, right? Mm -hmm. There was nothing overtly political on Awaken My Love besides the fact that he was reinvigorating funk in a modern atmosphere. But with this song, if it's really a signal uh, towards what we're going to get on this new album, it seems like he's interested in being in this kind of like political gadfly role. One of his quotes in the New Yorker profile that came out about a month ago, which I've read Uh, I almost read it twice. I I read it very (laughs) closely. It's a fascinating kind of document. Like, I still think he might have been goofing on the author. (laughs) It was in the the New Yorker. It was a Tad Friend profile. Um, And it was a very unusually self-aware profile, let's say. I mean, all profiles have some degree of self-awareness, but usually we, as, as writers, go to some lengths to keep that from being visible, Right. Right, of course. We we wanted to Tad would just let him (laughs) He let him drive the bus, basically. He he let he let Donald Grover drive drive the profile bus. Um, but one of the things he says in that profile is I hacked I figured out the algorithm. Right? I hacked the algorithm for for figuring out um pop culture and how to be popular. Mm -hmm. 
And I was thinking about that a little bit as I saw the song blow up, right? Right. That the ambiguity is a feature, not a bug. And that it is made for takes. Like this is <laughs> this totally. this video was could have been engineered in the Donald Glover pop culture lab um, to to create what it has created, what it successfully done. Right, right. And the question is to what end, right? Um, like, is it just conversation for conversation's sake? Um, as you said, as you point out, like in a in a way, the video itself kind of le- does not land anywhere. I do want to just point out that one of the things that I got from the video on the first few viewings, although may have be sort of deadened myself to it, is that his particularly like impish, let's say, you know, expression mm-hmm. um, and the way that he kind of acts to the camera made me as a white person feel weird about consuming the video. So this is really fascinating to me, your reaction, yeah. um, because... I've, you know, online, I am a part of a lot of communities with Black people who consume media and are very, you know, totally astute and critical on their consumption of it. And a lot of people that I've spoken to in conversations that I've kind of surveilled have felt that Donald Glover was, in fact, creating something for white people. Um, I think a lot of Black people are suspicious of him and suspicious of the idea that you know, in order to wake up the predominant consciousness, we have to reproduce these images of Black people dying. You know, I think a lot of people found that to be gratuitous and they found it to be maybe a little bit uh, cynical. Um, There's a writer at Spin who had a very different take from mine. His name is Israel. And he seems to um, take this video as kind of a, you know, like elementary or rudimentary comment from someone like Donald Glover, who on shows like Atlanta has shown us that he's, he's totally capable of not being, um, didactic. You know, he's Mm -hmm. somebody, he sort of like lets his stories breathe. Whereas Israel felt with, um, this is America that Donald might have actually been pandering to uh, the guilt that a white viewer might feel upon watching, you know, the contrast of the dancing and the death. Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. Sunbasket is different from every other you know, meal box preparation kit I've tried because they give you actually not just like, you know, the recipes that you're preparing every week, but you will get a recipe booklet every week that has the recipes in your box. And it has the recipes that everyone else got with their particular menu, but you can try them too. And why not? Because a lot of them are, as my copy says right here, you know, they they fit various lifestyles. They're paleo or gluten-free. They're under 30 minutes. They're like one pan meals. They're sheet pan meals. I love that you could basically get a, a, a whole set of recipes and not just the ones you're trying and also makes it easy if you want to try those options and maybe switch your menu. And you can get more options than ever if you go to Sunbasket app and pick from those 18 weekly recipes. Easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs. 
Uh, and I'm trying to think what my favorite is. What I like about Sunbasket, I can't think of a favorite right now. I love that how fresh their ingredients are. Um, I love the recipe booklet. And I also love they pay a lot more attention than other uh, meal packagers to the packaging itself. I don't feel like I am filling a landfill personally when I unpack my Sunbasket box. And everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get healthy and delicious meals on the table in about 30 minutes. There is something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash friends today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash friends. Well, pandering to guilt is an interesting concept. I mean, I don't know what is intentional here and I don't know how typical my response is, but I felt like his borrowing of the Jim Crow poses and that I think intentionally kind of ridiculous expression, you know, like right, the right. Mi- mindless expression that he puts on that, that that smile that seems pasted on in the way that the Jim Crow, you know, smile is pasted on. Right. Like made felt like an indictment to me. Like, are you enjoying this? You bet. Are you? I bet you're enjoying this. You know, like this is you enjoying my, you know cultural product and you should not feel comfortable about it. Right. Well, Donald, the thing is Donald Glover is not the first black artist to play in that space. Right? No, no, no. He um, seems you know, very successful at it. I have to are say. constantly commenting on the possible like minstrel uh, intrigue that, you know, draws white artists to their work. But I think um, for a lot of, of, people who are black and who are his fans and people who are black and who maybe aren't his fans. The question is, who are you making this video for? Right. Um, and I think ultimately I walked away from it feeling that he was actually making the video for himself. Um, and I, I think it's important for us to call out Hiro Murai, who is his frequent collaborator on Atlanta. Yes. Hero, uh, he, directs most of the the episodes on that show. I felt that the video was very much an extension of the Atlanta universe. Um, and I think this might be the first instance where we see Donald Glover and Childish Gambino actually uh, colliding in ways that are contradictory, but mm-hmm. in ways that I think make us, or at least make me much more invested in the evolution of Glover, the artist. Yeah. I think that ultimately, yes, it was made for him. And it made for his purposes, which is, and that's sort of, but that's the part where I'm like, well, I guess shouldn't all art be ultimately be made for the artist? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I can't really knock him for that. And if, I mean, there's a part of me that feels that wants to be cynical about if his goal is like just for the clicks, you know. But right. but it's not just for the clicks. I mean, it is a conversation. Like this is not just viral for the sake of viralness. I don't think, you know, like yeah, it it's a, it's strange. Like I feel like we play we're playing into his hands by having so many conversations about it. But then how can you not discuss it? I know, and he's <laughs> he's not the sort of artist. He's not going to be doing interviews. No, no, to give us the solution of this video. Um, and in that sense, he is. You know. He's he's always been a provocateur, um, and I think he's been over the years slowly unveiling himself as such. Uh, but I think it is a great um, experiment in sort of measuring how credulous people can be. Um, <laughs> okay, yep. I think it's fair to 
uh, you know, I don't think of Donald Glover as a particularly righteous person. He doesn't seem like an artist who's invested in those kind of, you know, quick hit uh, reactionary responses. It seems like he has like a long-term project and we're only getting glimpse of it. And mm-hmm. we possibly won't really understand his agendas until decades on. I want to make space for the fact that I do think that he is making a comment on uh, American politics and American cultural politics. But I also think that he is, uh, he looks, I would say, beyond the immediate horizon. Um, and who knows, maybe these reactions that people are having on social media will become, will become folded in to the project of the new Childish Gambino, as, as we'll listen to it soon. I think that that's possible, too. Um, he is just so intriguing. Like, I find him, the more, I mean, that's part of the, the plan, I guess. Like, so the more I know, like, the more I'm like, gosh, what is happening here? Right. You know? Um, and, and it's funny, like, Atlanta, I do feel like, is a, you, you said, I think, very beautifully, like, the explores the interiority of, like, Black consciousness. And I, the way I feel about that show is that it's not for me, but it's so beautiful and like so well done. Like that's what invites me into it as a white person, you know, is like, it's just, it's just great. It's just perfectly done. How could I not like want to watch it? Um, But I also am super aware when I'm watching it that like, this is not like this conversation is not, it will be happening whether or not I'm there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like that's a conversation that I'm not necessarily going to be a part of. Like, and I think um, one thing with Glover is that he has worked to get to this point where he can make a show on yeah. FX that totally, in my opinion, privileges black interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. You know, in that profile with Tad, he mentions that he kind of had to Trojan horse the project of Atlanta into the network. You know, originally they were under the impression that it was going to be kind of like a buddy comedy. <laughs> yep. And, you know, we get episodes of Atlanta that end in the suicide of a young black child. We get episodes of Atlanta that seem to, you know, recall the fugue dreams of, of Alice in Wonderland. Um, and so I think one element of Glover's artistry that I'm really, really drawn to is like the unpredictable factor in it, the aspect of meandering. It seems like he, you know, starts at a point, but can like end up radiating in like 10 different directions. Um, and then I think his unpredictability makes him a difficult spokesman for <laughs> black culture at large. Cause the thing is, you just don't know where he's going to go. And he's not the kind of artist who's going to give you boilerplate, you know, fuck Trump right. <laughs> or Trump resistance messages. Uh, he's, he's not interested in capitulating to virtue signaling in that way. So what happens when you have a culture, like a, a criticism machine that pretty much only knows to pick up on signals of virtue, right? With someone like Glover, the machine's going to get jammed. And I wonder if that isn't part of the project consciously. I think it absolutely is. Because I think when you say he starts one place and then radiates in 10 different points and he can't, therefore can't be a, you know, spokesperson. I mean, I think that's a mess, a good message to white America that like stop looking for individual black people to be spokesmen. 
Yeah. And I think for black people too, you know, um, I think it can be really difficult when your artists become enmeshed in your desire for a political spokesman. And I think the Trump era has accelerated that aspect. And we found time and time again, that it just doesn't work. You look at Kanye West you know, um, I was going to put a clock on how long we're going to take to get to Kanye. And I'm really proud that it took this long. So I mean, continue. it took everything in my body to, <laughs> <laughs> to um, keep that conversation on, on the wayside. But I think, you know, these two Glover and West, they're phenomena that people like can't even help, but relate to each other. Yeah. Because I think the obliqueness of Glover has it's carved out this space where he can put out a video like this is America, where he shoots a black choir to death with an AK 47. Mm. Whereas West, you know what, maybe he's doing performance artists. People say, maybe he's interested in being a provocateur. He couldn't make a statement like that right now because of the way he's engaged politics, like very head on in his friendship with Trump. So I think Glover, I think, We'll look back and find that he was maybe the, one of the cannier artists in terms of engaging with the Trump era, but not capitulating to the sort of like hashtag activism that people want from celebrities and artists right now. I think that's a place that we might have to end on because I think we could go on and on because there's is there's a lot there's a lot there. And that is, again, that's probably what he once from us. Um, but we only have so much time, but I'll have to have you on again uh, for the I next... I would love to come on again. You know, if not the next Donald Clever project, which will be worth discussing than something else. Um, thank you Let's so much. It. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for having me. And it's unfortunate to have to do a discussion about a video on a podcast, but hopefully everyone else has also watched it multiple times and can, can call, oh, it, call it to sure. mind. <laughs> <laughs> How, right. how many was it? I mean, by the time we've ended this conversation, it's probably like 70 million That's views. Right. That's right. And all of their t- takes for everyone. And <laughs> a, a take in every pot. Um, all right. Thanks so much, Doreen. Thank you for having me. And that is it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of the program where I always feel like I need to have a special conversation with the super fans. I actually got called out a little bit last week for putting my sort of correction to the Sam Harris uh, reference I made a few podcasts ago at the end of the show. Someone said it felt like maybe you weren't doing a genuine correction. You should have your corrections at the beginning of the show, just like Sam Harris does. And I am going to take that into full consideration. Um, There's a part of me that feels like the corrections and housekeeping should be for people who really listen all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And who are following both the mistakes and progress we make. And speaking of mistakes and progress, I will now say that we got a lot of feedback on last week's listener question with Ira Madison, in which Ira, in no uncertain terms, uh, told the listener to keep it. Uh, As it were, Uh, his question was about how to deal and and how to um, debate uh, someone with racist views. And Ira had had no time for that. And I I have mixed feelings about that response, but it's a genuine one. Uh, and apparently, though, I'm not alone in having mixed feelings about that response. Heard back from a lot of people, people of color and white folks. And so I think we might have to have Ira back. But that will be another show. 
this is it for this show. Thank you for listening. Rate and review. And most of all, have a good one. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.